Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. In Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a journalist and the author of Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain, James Bloodworth, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you, man. Before we get into the interview, just tell everybody who you are, uh, how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through life to this point? Uh, so I'm a journalist and author. Uh, my journey through life, um, well, I, 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 failed my, I failed my schooling. Uh, I <laughs> failed my GCSEs. That's how journalism um, works, guys. Yeah, you, but you can, you can all do it. Um, <laughs> and then I went back to college when I was 23 as, a, as like a mature student, um, college, university. Then writing was kind of the only thing I was capable of doing. Um, and so then, yeah, I did this. And, and, and I, I enjoy it. It's, it's kind of the one thing that's kind of my passion, but it's also my work as well, which is cool. And you kind of opened with a bit of self-deprecation, but the book you've written is actually incredibly important. And we were just chatting as, as you got here about the fact that left or right and you're left wing, and we'll get into that. Uh, a lot of our viewers keep saying to us, you need to get more left wing people on. So we're glad you've You've agreed to come on. Having said that, I bet they're going to start moaning. The <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, he's actually left wing. <laughs> ah. uh, but it's good to have you on. And uh, I, as I say, I think your book is incredibly important wherever you are in the political spectrum, because some of the stuff that you talk about, some of the things that your investigative journalism uncovered, it's very serious and it's a big problem for society, especially going forward. So for anyone who hasn't read your book yet, which I'm sure they'll get after this interview, what tell us what you did. What is the book about? What did you do? What was the process? So in twenty end of twenty fifteen, um, I was I had this kind of idea of a book about kind of low wage Britain about what was going on in the economy. So you cast your mind back to twenty fifteen. David Cameron was prime minister. He was talking a lot about you know the economy is on the well on the road to recession, uh, recovery after a long recession, record number of people in work, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But behind the scenes, there was it was a bit more disconcerting, the picture. So there was a big rise in the number of people on zero-hours contracts. There were a lot more people working in something that was being called the gig economy. So Uber drivers, Deliveroo, uh, riders, couriers, etc. And they were a big rise in self-employment. But it was a bit, um, the world of that was a bit murky in, in terms of whether they're really self-employed or whether they were employed by these, by these companies. And so I'd done many jobs like that myself 10 years previously. So I wanted to kind of go back a decade later after this big recession we'd had and kind of see uh, what had changed in that, in that kind of world of work. And, the, and I didn't feel like you really got a sense of it from, you know, you can do your journalistic kind of detours for you go on a date, you go for, to visit some kind of downtrodden town for like a day, uh, you go and hang around, like interview some factory workers for a day. But I thought like I was really kind of, inspired by kind of the, the, the immersive journalism that people like George Orwell, Polly Toynbee, Barbara Ehrenreich had done before, where you fully immerse yourself into that world. And then you can really paint a true picture of what, what it's actually like to work in those jobs, live in those towns, and kind of lead that lifestyle of the, the so-called kind of precariat in the, in the British economy. And what did you find? Well, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I was worried, a part of me was worried when I set out to write the book that it might be you know, the first first place I got a job was an Amazon warehouse. And I thought, you know, this, I was worried that my book was going to be boring. What am I going to, I'd worked in a warehouse before when I was younger. Um, and I was worried it kind of, is it going to be like boring? What am I, what am I going to write about? Um, but the book, book pretty much wrote itself. Um, as soon as I, as soon as I started the work, 
uh, there were so many kind of shocking things going on that, the, yeah, the book essentially wrote itself. So, I mean, my first job was at Amazon. Uh, I kept a diary every day I was working there. And the first day I remember writing in this diary that the atmosphere of the Amazon warehouse um, had the atmosphere of what I imagine a prison would feel like. Which sounds kind of like hyperbole. It sounds like, it sounds like um, I'm exaggerating. But it was, um, you know, you, you, were, you were given disciplinaries if you took, um, took days off sick, even with notes from the doctor. You were, people were given disciplinaries for taking too long going to the toilet. You had to go through airport-style security every time you went on break or every time you went to the toilet. So, you know, taking off your belt, your watch. You had to be drug and alcohol tested. Um, there were all these kind of, you, you were constantly monitored by and surveilled by, uh, by the management. You were underpaid, so we weren't paid the minimum wage for half the time I was working there. One girl I interviewed was paid 62p an hour, and it took her six weeks to get the money back over Christmas. Um, there was all this stuff going on. And my, my, as soon as I got in there, my, my instinctive reaction was like, why does no one know about this? And then it became, then there became, then there was kind of a zeal attached to the project to kind of tell the story of, of the stuff that was going on there. And it was a similar, Amazon was the worst in that respect. But there was, there, it was, there were similar things that were true when I worked in social care in Blackpool, when I was an Uber driver in London, and when I was in a call center in, in South Wales. It was, it was, um, it was revelatory to me um, more than, you know, before I told the story to anyone else, it, it, it really like shocked me, first of all. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking to myself, how can they get away with paying lower than the minimum wage? How can they possibly do that? It's surely not legal, is it? No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely illegal. I mean, there's several, several reasons. So on the one hand, it's the agency who pays your wages. So Amazon management would be the people who we dealt with for things like, um, you know, a whole, like if you take a day off sick or whatever, um, or just, just productivity targets, it'd be the Amazon mm -hmm. management. But then you had an agency, an employment agency would deal with the payroll things. And they would put down the underpayment of wages to incompetency. Which isn't an excuse. I mean, you're still breaking the law. But most of the people we were working with, I was working with, were migrants, migrant workers. So some of them couldn't speak very good English. So how are they expected to phone up payroll or whatever? And the agency themselves would just fob you off and say, oh, you know, you'll receive the rest of your money next week or whatever. And just didn't expect to encounter people like undercover journalists and people like me in there um, who would then tell the story of what was going on. But it's... Um, it, it felt like there's a law there with the minimum wage, but for some people in our society, it exists mainly on paper, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Um, and well, if you don't know the, what the law is, because you've come from Romania and you don't even speak the local language very well, right? You're not going to know what the law is. You're not going to have the ability to have it enforced on your behalf. And the other thing about the, the precariousness of, of what you talk about in the book is these people are under constant threat of losing their job for going to the toilet. You know, what would happen if they actually start demanding their workers' rights? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, that, yeah, that, the, the fact that, that you're dealing with, that the, the management is dealing with migrant workers makes it, their, their hand is weak, feels weaker, in, in a sense, because on the one hand, they don't necessarily understand the, what the law of the land is in Britain in terms of employment rights. Uh, when you get a payslip, it doesn't say what the minimum wage is, but it doesn't print the minimum wage on the payslip, which is um, one of the things I've been saying that, that that would be a really easy change the government could make to to make sure everyone knows what the minimum wage actually is. And the employment agency, the, the, the representatives of that agency were really elusive as well. So it'd be hard to find them often, hard to get hold of them. Um, and, yeah, and they would just rudely like, fob you off if you, if you ever inquired about your pay. I mean, the, 
the girl, the young woman who was who was paid paid so grossly underpaid, sixty two p an hour. She told me it took six weeks to get the money back from the employment agency, and that was only because her mum was phoning up all the time, threatening to like go to ACAS. Um, and yeah, and she said she would have been screwed and homeless if she hadn't lived with her mum. And yeah, it just felt like um, they just didn't care, and they were complacent in the in the sense that they wouldn't assume someone like me was in the warehouse for a start. And they know that those none of those people have any kind of voice in in the media or whatever. They're not going to be. You're not going to see some some kind of migrant worker from a warehouse in the West Midlands in this small town of Rugeley, which no one's ever heard of writing a column in, in, in the <laughs> newspaper um, damning their, their treatment at work. You just don't really see that. So I guess that's partly why it was allowed to go on. And w- was everybody in the warehouse on zero-hours contracts? Not everyone in the warehouse. All the people I worked, we all were. So all the people who did the job I did were. Um, so, you know, if you're in a managerial role, you're, you're not on a zero-hours contract. But all of us, we worked for two, there were two, two employment agencies. There was Transline and PMP. And all of us were on zero-hours contracts. Um, so Amazon, Amazon says, you know, oh, we don't employ people on zero-hours contracts. But no, because they, they employ them through an agent. The agency employs them on zero-hours contracts. So this means, yeah, you'd work, we worked like uh, four, four days a week, 10 and a half hours each day. And then, some, you know, I remember one Thursday, we were told the warehouse was going to be closed on the Saturday, just for, ma- for maintenance, whatever that was. Um, and because we're on, you're on a zero-hours contract, that can happen. So you're, you're down, your wages are down kind of, you know, you lose 10 and a half hours that week. So, so yeah, we were all on, we on zero-hours contract. And um, for our American listeners and viewers you, who may hey, not... Hey, man, it's not just American. We've got Malaysian followers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're big in Malaysia. We're going global, <laughs> James. Um, but so for, for our international viewers and listeners, what is a zero-hours contract? And why do you, do you think they are such a toxic thing to our employment? Yes, zero hours contracts is basically you have no guaranteed hours each week, but typically you can't get another job as well. So, so with the um, the company you're employed by this company, so you can't claim like social security, you can't get another job, um, but you don't know what you're working necessarily from week to week in terms of hours. So one week you might have five be working five hours, the next week you might be working thirty five hours, um, and it's. You know, it's not always bad because, I mean, I, I had a zero-hours contract when I was a student. I was a postman as well. And during, like, term time, I would just work five hours on a Saturday. Then during my holidays, I would work kind of full-time. Um, but the, the problem is many of the zero-hours contracts are used to basically control, <laughs> control the workforce. So you have a sense where you have a, a situation where sometimes people are just getting one or two hours a week and then they can't get another job at the same time. Um, they're constantly on call, and they also can't sign on for Social Security. So you, you're not making much money. You can't get another job. You're kind of in limbo, really. Mm. And if you leave your job, if you quit the job, you can't then sign on for Social Security because you've left voluntarily. Whereas, you know, to get to, to get job seekers allowance, say to get to get Social Security, you need to have lost your job kind of involuntarily. You can't just quit and then go go sign on anymore anymore. So you get have lots of people stuck in this kind of limbo, where they're not getting enough hours, not making enough money. And then often the state has to then subsidize that through like tax credits, et cetera, anyway. Um, and yet you have, and you also have this, this insecurity hanging over their heads where they're not, they're not getting enough, you know, they don't know where the money's coming from week to week. 
Well, on the plus side, ta- Amazon are very good at paying tax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you so it's that. not as if they're not contract- Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to d- dig into that a little bit later, but uh, tell us more about uh, you're working in this warehouse. You've got a device like a bit of like a mobile phone, right, or something like mm-hmm. that, a handheld device that's tracking your every movement. It's keeping an eye on uh, how long you're spending working. Uh, it's keeping an eye on how long you spend going to the toilet. It's keeping an eye on all this stuff, and it's all used to measure your productivity, essentially, right? So you're, you're treated very much like a, a robot, like a cog in the machine. What other kind of things, just just for people at home, because when you talk about, you know, you almost kind of, um, we almost glanced over this idea that you're working in this place, and if you get ill, and you have a doctor who says James is ill, and you call in and say, I'm ill, you are still being disciplined for that, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, that, that, that is crazy, right? So what other kind of stuff that, that is happening in these places that people don't know about? Yeah, I mean, the, the sickness policy was one of the most shocking things. So I took it, to, I was actually, I was actually ill one day, like, had a very like, heavy cold, tried to work through it. Then I wanted to test out the, what the policy actually was. So the following day I phoned in in the morning, you know, they said you had to phone in, I think it was three hours before I did that. And also said, you know, I can go to the NHS walking centre, get a note from the doctors if you need that as well. And they said on the phone, you know, you know, that's fine. You don't need that. You phoned us. You'd let us know. Then when I went in the next day, this this Amazon rep came around with a clipboard um, looking for me and, you know, said, can you confirm you were you were off sick yesterday? And then he said, you know, I've, I've been given a point for this. It's like, what's that? It's a disciplinary point. If you get sick, you lose your job. And I queried it and said, this doesn't seem fair because I... You know, I was genuine. I was still kind of ill when I was when I was there. You could see this, um, and said about the doctor's note. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, his 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 reasoning was, you know, this is what Amazon have always done. As if you know, it's like in school where the teachers like because I said so. It's mm-hmm. like doesn't tell me anything. Um, that was the justification. And there were also things like, you know, I noticed that every. Uh, the beginning of every shift, you'd have this like, you'd, you'd have almost like a team meeting. They'd give you like a, a, uh, a briefing before you, they sent you out to the, to the warehouse. And um, they, would, uh, they would keep talking about this thing called idle time. Like you're clocking up too much, as they call it, idle time. And it's like, what, uh, what is this? And then I was, I remember they would, I was told one day, you know, you have too much idle time on your, on your device because it, it measures where you are, productivity, etc., what you're doing. And uh, it, it dawned on me, you know, eventually this is just the time, you know, you have like 10 minutes idle time, say, during a shift. And that's just a toilet break. It's like, because to go on the toilet, to the toilet, we had two toilets on the bottom floor of this huge warehouse, 700,000 square foot warehouse. Two toilets on the that's bottom. That's like 10 football pitches. Yeah, they always, mm-hmm. they always boast about it being like 10 football pitches for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, like a phallic, like boast. Um, <laughs> and like the, the two toilets are on the bottom floor. And you have to go down four flights of stairs because there's four floors. I was on the top floor. And you have to go through security to go to the bathroom, which takes airport-style security. So, you know, it takes takes time to go through. And uh, then, you know, so going to the bathroom takes 10 minutes, typically, about 10 minutes. And you're being given, people are being given disciplinaries for idle time, and it's just taking bathroom breaks during a 10-and-a-half-hour shift. So you, you need to take bathroom breaks, right? If you don't drink enough water, you get a headache because you're doing you're walking ten miles a day. Um, yeah, I mean that that was shocking. I mean you have you had half an hour break and then two ten minute breaks, um, 
And by the time you get to the canteen on these breaks, you're getting like 15 minute break for the, for the half an hour break. And then you get an extra five minutes for the added on to the 10 minute breaks. But you, you have about seven minutes break when you get to the canteen through security and stuff. So you, you're hardly getting any break time. The productivity targets were insane. Um, I was, I'm someone who's, who goes to the gym, who's relatively fit and healthy. And I was told the first week that I was in the bottom 10% of productivity. And I was running around this, this warehouse. You get disciplinaries for running, even though you have to run to meet your productivity targets. And this whole state of affairs is, is kind of is kind of plastered over with this this verbiage, this nonsense about, you know, you're not allowed to call the warehouse the warehouse, you have to call it a fulfillment center. <laughs> um, if you, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a, yeah, I mean, it's like a cult. And if you, um, I was already in the Labour Party, so I don't need to be too <laughs> yeah. um, if you, um if you, if you lose your job, you're not fired or sacked, you're released. Um, <laughs> well, it sounds like you are released from quite yeah. a bad situation, yeah. actually. Yeah, we used to joke, uh, or as we used to joke, you've been promoted to a customer. Because <laughs> yeah. um, you get called an associate, right? Is that yeah, right? and it's, um, you're not workers, but there's no workers, bosses or management, you're all associates. Um, uh, so Jeff, you're, you're on the same level as Jeff Bezos. Yeah, we were told, you know, the, like word for word, Jeff Bezos is an associate and so are you. <laughs> we're, at, we're, we're all one big happy family here at Amazon. Do you reckon, uh, on the first day. We've told do you reckon you. Jeff Bezos makes 62p an hour? Well, yeah. I think he probably does. <laughs> well, that's what he declares anyway. Yeah, yeah, to, no, that probably is what he declares. <laughs> to exactly. the authorities. Well, there's one question I wanted to ask. Why airport security just to go to the toilet? So they can't steal shit. Yeah, it's, 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 it's concerns about theft. It's, um it's purportedly See, this concerned is how you about know I'm Russian. Yeah. I was like, yeah, that, I know exactly yeah. how that yeah, works. Yeah, I mean, it's supposedly concerned about theft, but, um, you know, if you treat people that poorly, they're going to nick stuff, and I can see the rationale of that. If uh, you pay 62p an hour, you probably got to nick stuff to survive. Mm. So, um, no, but I don't know. You can, some people will say human nature, whatever it is. Some people don't. They think they're paranoid all the time that you're going to nick stuff. So uh, they have this security you've got to go through every time you go to the bathroom, yeah, or, or go and break or leave. And what was the atmosphere like in the warehouse, the morale? Uh, fulfillment centre. Oh, sorry, fulfillment <laughs> centre. Were they fulfilled? We, we, a lot of the time you weren't allowed to... I mean, there was also a prohibition on talking to your people you were working with, so um, you had to do that surreptitiously. Uh, the, the morale, I mean, it was the atmosphere was like some kind of uh, low-rent kind of prison or something. It was... Um, people just... You, people would not be there very long, most people, so... You, it was easy to get fired. So if you got six points, you'd lose your job and you're getting points for... I mean, some people got points because the bus was late. The Amazon bus bringing them in was late. So they clocked in late and then they all got given points for this, for clocking <laughs> in like 15 minutes late. You're off sick, you get a point, point for too many toilet breaks, um, point for low productivity, then you, you're on four, five, six points, you're, you're gone. All the jobs are temporary nine-month contracts anyway. So you, you you're not seeing people... You see some people, like, you make a friend and then a few days later they've just vanished. And uh, it's, um, they've been fired or they've just quit because they can't, can't stand it anymore. So people just walking around with these trolleys like drones almost, just super tired. Uh, your feet kind of extremely sore because of the distances you have to walk. You're not provided special footwear. And it was, um, I mean, yeah, I worked in a yogurt factory once and I worked in a toilet paper factory once. And it's like, morale in those places isn't like... It's not like a part. It's not like some party every day. But this was this was something else. This was um, uh, yeah. It's just people who know they're being exploited, mostly Romanian migrants who 
would, on various occasions, would compare it to me to modern slavery. I wouldn't use those terms because I thought, oh, that's a bit strong. But they would say, no, this is like, we feel like slaves. We feel like slaves. Mm. Just, it's, it was just, um, uh, yeah, it was just completely like eye-opening. I've never really s seen anything like that in the UK anyway. And what responsibility do you think customers have who buy from Amazon and, you know, and they go, well, it's cheap. I get the book that I want. It's convenient. Um, do we have responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course. I mean, it's there are there are like a million. There's like infinite ways to kind of rationalise why it's fine. Why you know, I need this Amazon Prime thing, or I need this book like instantly. And I've done it before. Like I had Amazon from like 2003 or some sometime around then. And it's um, I'd be getting these super like these quick super quick deliveries, not as quick as now, and would never kind of um, never really think about what was going on down the supply chain in the same way that you know 100 years ago you britain had a had an empire and you have all this stuff being bought and sold in in kind of the colonies and and benefiting basically british consumers and just don't ask any questions and it's fine but then when you start to delve into it um like as i did and as other people have you you kind of realize that that this it has consequences this kind of the speed, the kind of the cheapness, there's a cost to it. And the cost is borne by people in these warehouses, people along the supply chain, uh, who conveniently we don't hear from most of the time. Um, that was one of the reasons I did the book, to, so we just kind of give those people some kind of voice um, and actually find out, kind of, kind of shove it down the throats of people who, you know, consumers who, who don't, maybe don't think about this stuff. In the nicest possible way. Mm. And in the book, you don't just talk about Amazon. So tell us about some of the other jobs that you uh, took on for this uh, for this research. Yeah, so I did. A, I was social carer, so like domiciliary care. So that's like visiting house to house in the town of Blackpool. Um, yeah, so driving around in my car, um, you're kind of on a zero hours contract again. It's twenty minute care visits for elderly and disabled people, typically. So. Uh, you'd work, be working from about seven in the morning till two with a two-hour break, and then two, uh, then four till ten and ten in the evening, roughly um, on a typical day. Um, and yeah, it's, it's looking after people who can't. Wait, just hold hold on. So you started work at seven in the morning, mm -hmm. and you finished work at ten in the evening. Yeah, you have a break in the middle, but yeah, yeah oftentimes but you don't take the break because uh, uh, you can't get everything done if you mm -hmm. take the full full break because you have every you have 20 minute care visits right you go to blackpool has a high rate of like health problems uh, ms particularly so you have lots of um disabled and elderly people lots of people move there to retire so they went to blackpool when for their summer holidays and they think you know this is a lovely place to retire so you have a high high elderly population as well so you have lots of people also low incomes where their care is subsidized by the local authority you're you're visiting them. You're 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 going say seven in the morning. You're you're getting them out of bed. You're taking them to the bathrooms, use the toilet, washing them, uh, making them tea, preparing their breakfast, dressing them, either taking them back to bed if they're very, you know, if it's um, palliative care, say, mm. uh, or you're, you're taking them to the living room, putting the TV, their favorite TV programs on, whatever it is, and giving them medication, filling out the paperwork, all of this within like twenty minutes, which is uh, in practice almost never possible, mm. never achievable. It's very hard to do that within 20 minutes. So then you, and then 
say you do do it within 20 minutes, you have 10 minutes then to drive to your next appointment. You're not paid for the 10 minutes, so you're only paid for the 20 minute blocks of, of care visits. So you're basically paid below the minimum wage again. Because driving from house to house is, is work time, right? Mm-hmm. You're in your work uniform. You're not doing other things. You're, you're going from workplace to workplace, but you're not paid for that. So that answers the question, I guess, about, you know, are you working all this time? No, because you're getting all these 10-minute breaks um, <laughs> all the time. And you're working through your proper breaks because you can't do all of that stuff within 20-minute care visits. Um, and that was the most... So uh, one care worker told me, you know, they're treat- they feel like they're treated like glorified cleaners. Um, no disrespect to cleaners, but the level of responsibility you have as a carer is a different kind of job. And you're basically looking after people who fought in the Second World War, fought in the Korean War, and you're treating them like dirt because the care system is screwed, basically. Um, so that's what I did in Blackpool. Then I went to South Wales, where I worked in a call centre uh, for Admiral. That was the least bad job. I mean, Admiral made an effort, actually, to make you feel okay. Like, my book is... I think my book is has more kind of credibility in that when when... A company does treat you well and does do things to make it a bit better, the workplace. I'm completely honest about it. I don't tr- necessarily try and, you know, paint them as like these, these employers as these demons. Like, um, Admiral treated us fairly well. The, the job was, was, was poorly paid still. It was very commission dependent. So if you didn't make your commission, you wouldn't have much money that week. But they made an effort to actually try and make the workplace, uh, you know, a more, a more pleasant place, which was in contrast to, say, Amazon. Then from South Wales, I went. I came back to London and I worked as an Uber driver for two and a half months. I think it was two and a half months. Yeah, and that was um, again. It was easier in one, some respects in that you, you know, you, if I don't want to work one day, I just don't turn my phone on, um, which is you know I don't have some boss like on my case all the time. Uh, but it was also it was very not very much like self-employment, despite the kind of. Because that's the argument, really, isn't it? It's flexibility gives yeah. you the opportunity Be your to be your own boss. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's not like that? No. So, I mean, there was, again, Uber, there was, it was coming back into a world where there was all this language which kind of blurred the distinction between the reality and there was like the rhetorical universe and the flesh and blood universe. And the two were very, very different. So, you know, be your own boss. We kept hearing from Uber on our induction day. Autonomy, flexibility. If the wheels aren't turning, you aren't earning all of this like crap. <laughs> Um, yeah, like vomit-inducing uh, <laughs> trash, and then, um, but also, and you know, you'd sacrificed for this autonomy. You'd sac- you'd um, you didn't receive a minimum wage. You didn't receive holiday pay, sick uh, or an- uh, sick pay or annual leave, <clears throat> and um, autonomy actually didn't really exist beyond turning your phone on and off, beyond long- logging in and out of the app. So we were told during our induction, you have this induction day at Uber before you go out where they show you, teach you how to use the app, etc. And we were told by this kind of hip guy in like, you know, jeans and, and t-shirt, um, you know, trying to, you know, like the sort of person I see around Shoreditch or Hoxton, like <laughs> hipster. Um, I knew they were fucking evil. <laughs> <laughs> like kombucha drinking uh, yeah. hipster. That, you know, that we weren't allowed to pick and choose which jobs we did. So whatever, whatever job Uber sends you, you have to accept it. So that was the words they used. You can't pick and choose what jobs you do. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which that doesn't sound like self-employment. You know, if you're actually self-employed, mm. you, 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 that's what you do it. Like, I'm a self-employed journalist. If I don't want to do a job, I can say, lad, that's not worth my while to do it based on the money or whatever. We were even told what we were allowed to talk about with the passengers in the back of our car. So you're not allowed to talk about politics, uh, religion, or sport. 
which um, that is like all cab drivers do talk about. <laughs> <isn't> <laughs> it, um, well, racism is not on the list. Yeah, you can still tell a racist joke. Still do that. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and if your rating fell below four point seven stars, you know the customer leaves you a rating one to five stars every time they have a ride. Uh, if it fell below four point seven stars, you would be uh, you could be you ran the risk of being deactivated. So fired. <laughs> the, fired. All, all of the shit, it just sounds like it's from some kind of novel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yet, here we are, we are here in London, other people watching this maybe, using the Uber, buying stuff on Amazon. We're all buying these Primark t shirts that are made by slave laborers, wherever they are, right? Uh, we've all got phones that are made with, made by Chinese people who, who are jumping out of factories to just because they hate it so much with precious metals mined by slaves in Africa, whatever. And on the one hand, it's terrible. On the other hand, I don't see, like literally, as I, I'm just being honest. As I see, sit here right now, I'm listening to all this and I'm going, this is horrible. What can I do about it? Fuck all. Leave Uber driver a tip. <laughs> <laughs> nice big tip. That I yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that, 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 I joke, but that is actually, um, like one of the worst things about when I was driving for Uber is once you take out all your expenses, you, you basically earn just over the minimum wage, less than the London living wage. So it was £8 something an hour mm. it worked out. Once I'd subtracted, like, you know, car insurance for private hire drivers, like, 70-odd pounds a week, three, mm. three, three grand a year, which is quite high. You know, cost of washing the car regularly, like, valeting it uh, regularly. So, I mean, yeah, one thing you can do is leave Uber drivers a tip, even if it's just a, f- a few pounds, like, eat every time you use it because they're not making enough money. Mm. Don't leave them... Leave them five star ratings, unless I know, unless someone was like really horrible, there's some real reason not to. Leave them a five star rating just as standard. Things like this can, and also when there's a court case going on now with um, Uber drivers are like in the final stage. I think it goes to the high court where the drivers have, have claimed they're not really self-employed, um, based on the things, some the kinds of things I've I've told told you today. Um, and Uber's lost two court cases and it's going to the high court and whether the whether Uber drivers should be classed as self-employed contractors or workers. So they're self-employed, workers, and then employee, employees. It's like a mid-category. So they should, would then be entitled to the minimum wage and annual leave. And so I'd say, you know, follow the case and, and um, y- there are ways to support the kind of the trade unions which are pursuing that case. Um, yeah, I mean, like if you just look into it, there are, you, there are ways to offer support um, to those drivers who are saying that they're not actually self-employed. Um, I guess my point more broadly, though, is I feel like that is something that requires a systemic solution because uh, take your book, it's it's on Amazon, right? And and you've talked about the fact that you had to put it on Amazon because otherwise no one would publish it. Right? Yeah. So the power of these massive, and I, I'm not saying that as a kind of you're a hypocrite kind of thing because I totally get it because it's a trap. We're all in this trap. These corporations have so much power now and they have such a hold over the, 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 the running of our societies, the market for these goods, the market for these services, the market for this labor, that we're all trapped in it. And I, and I guess the question is, is there anything that even at the government level we can do about it now? Yeah, I mean, I thought you were going to be, every, every, every book talk I do, there's always one person who uh, says, oh, your book's for sale on Amazon. And it's like, they think no one's ever asked me that before. Yeah. And it's, uh, like, it's this, this brilliant, like, gotcha. 
But no, I thought you were going to do that. No, I was no. about to walk out. But, but I, told, <laughs> I told you, man, it's not what we do here. I might, we really just want to get to the bottom of it. And what I see, and I think what a lot of people see, you know, Andrew Yang is a presidential candidate in America who's talked about you know, automation and the impact that's going to have, is all of this shit is trapping us into the system from which there is no escape. And the problem, as Francis said very accurately, they don't pay tax. So even the benefits of automation, of all of this stuff, of you know, slave driving Romanians to work harder and harder, and this, we're, we're still not seeing the benefits of that as a society. That's yeah. just going into the pockets of billionaires. Yeah, I mean, Amazon's, Amazon's only in Luxembourg because geographically it's in the center of Europe. It's not because of the tax. That's their, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's their argument. Um, yeah. I'm sure they do loads of sales in Luxembourg. It's yeah. a huge market, isn't it? It's a great country. Yeah. Lots to do there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're yeah. a tax, tax advisor, especially. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Amazon, uh, in terms of the book thing, is the. So, yeah, I get this question all the time. And the first answer is that my publisher wouldn't publish me if I said I'm not going to sell I refuse to sell it on Amazon. They wow. just find someone else to do it because Amazon's the biggest book distributor. If if any book which is which boycotts Amazon typically, it's going to bomb. It's not going to because that's where most people buy their books now. Um, and you know, the idea that it's hypocritical is also it kind of falls down because it, authors don't benefit from this. Amazon discounts heavily, therefore authors are getting a smaller cut from from those books which discounted which are sold and secondhand books obviously. Um, so, so you get kind of, I got screwed in the warehouse, then screwed by <laughs> when I put my book for sale on mm. Amazon as well. And it's, it's a case of, you know, with audio books, pretty much everyone gets their audio books from Audible, now, which is mm. an Amazon company. So it's, I mean, a publisher cannot put a book on Audible, but then just no one's going to see it or buy it. You have, it's, it's almost a monopoly, basically. So you don't really have a choice as a as a producer, you know, of, 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 of books and, and whatever, not to, not to put it on, on those, those things. And, and yeah, you see that kind of, that creep into, into other areas, like, like they want to get into Amazon and other companies want to get into healthcare now. They have all this data on us. Um, they're also, they're, they're also, you know, with, with Google, et cetera, and, and ads, they're also selling us things based on, on data they have about us, you know, selling us things almost, you're you're kind of buying things almost subconsciously because you're you're being bombarded with these ads that they've where from this data they've accumulated about us. It's like that isn't my area, but you can see where it's kind of going. Oh, we've had people on the show. We had a, a good friend of of mine, Pippa Malmgren, who's a former presidential advisor, has mm. her own tech company now. Talks about all this stuff. But the question for me is, what do we do about the power of these corporations and the way that they're treating people and the fact that. As consumers, I mean, you can tell people don't use Amazon, right? But it's like saying to people, don't go outside, you know, as a solution to, to a particular problem. It's, it's not going to work because of, the, as I said, the power that they've now accumulated, right? So is there is there something that the government can do? Is there something that, uh, you know, do we need some kind of legislation in place to deal with these things? Is there a solution that you think that might work? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think like consumer boycotts are the be all and end all of of, do, of taking on these companies which treat people like this. Like, I mean, personally, I think one of the things that that's missing in say the Amazon warehouse is there's no trade union in there. I mean, if you had, if you have, this is part of a broader question of of kind of the the kind of death of kind of grassroots um, 
like aisles of like working class democracy, whether whether that be kind of social clubs, whether that's trade unions, whether even like religious organizations, the kind of like, and this isn't necessarily left wing arguments. So Edmund Burke, you know, the little platoons where you have these kind of small kind of organizations where, where you can kind of have that democratic kind of forum, like at a grassroots level. And you need that in, you need to make it easier for trade unions to get into places like Amazon. Because at the moment, if you go giving out f trade union forms in the car, even in the car, this huge car park of Amazon, you're chased off by security, filmed, the police are called, just to give out forms to tell workers what their rights are. Mm. Um, and if you if you get if you have workers organising themselves in these places, government has to do less as well. So you don't need the government kind of constantly having to send people from HMRC to these companies because it becomes self an organic self self regulating um, thing. If you if you have a, a union which is willing to to talk with management, but willing to also strike when um, when some of these things you know ridiculous things are going on in the, in these workplaces. Um, but you have to. You, I mean, empowering people in themselves, the, the very people who are working in these places, is um, is is I think what we need to do because if you just legislate from top down, if you just pass these laws, sometimes they only exist on paper because. As we've talked about already, the people in those places either don't know the law, or have no means to actually enforce them. Uh, whereas, if you get workers banding together and organising themselves, uh, you can actually um, you can actually um, take a stand against against some of this stuff. Um, but that's kind of the trade union movement has been partly the fault of the unions themselves, partly the fault of legislation and the changing nature of work. The union movement's been been declining for the last kind of thirty. 30, almost 40 years, I guess now. And James, when, when you were telling me this, again, and you were explaining, it's, it's, it's really terrifying. It's very, very scary. Do you think that we're moving towards that sort of future where the majority of jobs are going to be like that and it's only going to be a select few that are actually protecting you've got workers' rights as we compete more and more with, you know, with China and all the other countries? I mean, it's certainly possible with, um, with the kind of... <clears throat> there was a very good book I read recently called The Globotics Revolution. And it was about kind of how we really failed. The last period of disruption, like deindustrialization, de say the, the, the 80s and 90s. I mean, I visited some of those places in the book, say South Wales. We really failed to... Um, it left such a, an appalling legacy in many parts of the country. So in, in Blano Gwent in, in South Wales, you, you still have one in six people on antidepressants, which is um, a legacy of kind of worklessness since... The, the pits and, and the uh, power stations and steelworks were all closed, not all, but, but mostly closed very, very rapidly. And people didn't get, get new jobs and kind of just stagnated and um, got ill and, and et cetera. And um, his, his argument, this, this book argues that, you know, if we fail this time with the, the next big wave of disruptions coming in terms of jobs being outsourced to say, you know, you can get translation. You can get a Chinese graduate to translate a piece of piece of work now for you over the internet at a fraction of the price of what people are doing it for in Britain. So these jobs are going. You have automation, robots doing people's people's jobs. And if we don't, if we deal with this disruption as poorly as we dealt with the last wave of disruption, you will have this situation where it's not just there are there are kind of waves of middle class people thrown out of work as as well. So you have you will have this big kind of um, section of the population which is. Um, disinf like doing just just unskilled work such as such as I've done in the book, which is poorly remunerated. Um, you you lack kind of security. You can't get a house or something or a mortgage on on this stuff. And 
that's a, that those people are typically very angry, and then there's a political backlash from that, as we've seen. He argues this book argues that Brexit is the partly the kind of the delayed kind of backlash to the last wave of of the last disruption. So you have these people in places like Sunderland, places like South Wales, where deindustrialization, you know, over a period of of years has left these kind of angry middle-aged kind of men, basically, who who've not been able to work, who feel like society's left them behind. And they've kind of kicked back against the system um, with Brexit in the States, with with the election of Trump, places in, in say, France or Eastern Germany by voting for Marine Le Pen or the, the AFD in Germany. Um, and, and it can only get worse if more and more people are put through that kind of disruption. If, if it's, if it's the, more, the biggest section of society is put through that disruption, the, the worse the political backlash uh, will be. And you'll see, you'll, you, you could again see something like in the 1930s. I know this is always bandied around and like, you know, several years ago, you know, people comparing Trump to Hitler and all this ridiculous like nonsense. But if 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 the if there's that much economic disruption, it usually it's usually followed by nasty political extremism, whether usually the far right, and then followed by kind of Stalinism and all this mm. all this this crap as well. So well, the, this is the thing: is like uh, we we talked about Andrew Young a bit earlier. This is one of the things that he talks about: is that if you look at the election of Donald Trump. Uh, the states that he won, uh, that he really needed to win, that were the states where four million jobs, I think he talks about, were automated away. And it's only going to get much, much worse now. Uh, shopping malls are going to close. Trucking jobs are going to go. Uh, mid, as you say, middle class, like translation, legal, a lot of legal documents just get drafted automatically now or will be in the next 10 years. So it's, it's going to get worse. Um, and this is this is why it has to be talked about and it has to be addressed. And it's not just a right like, you know, you talk about from the left, but to people on the right, I would say as well, look, look at the Romanians who are working in the Amazon warehouse. Right. They are the reason that to, to some extent people are concerned about the levels of immigration because we had a lot of immigration. And, you know, if we weren't creating these conditions in which most British people wouldn't even want to work. Right, you wouldn't have these people coming over here in the first place. So it's not a left versus right issue. This is an issue that's going to affect everybody, mm. isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's a huge issue. Um, Can I just interrupt? What's your day job, Constantine? I don't have one. I'm oh. a comm- full time <laughs> and trigonometry and trigonometry. But you also I used to be a translator. Yeah, yeah. I used to be a translator. Uh, so. Give money, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Give money to Constantine, basically. No, but actually, I mean, before I stopped doing yeah. it pretty much, uh, it was, automation's happening, man. You, yeah. Yeah, you put something into Google Translate, it pretty, it does as good a job as like 90% of translators. Really? Do. Yeah, for some, for, for basic things. If you just want to understand the, the meaning of a text. Yeah. It's enough. Wow. You know, just, and, and it's only going to continue. So lots of people are going to, lose the job. But let, let's talk about the political uh, side of this. When you wrote the book, this, it came out last year, right? It's 2018. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the, the response to that, first of all, from the companies involved uh, and also from the wider public, politicians, etc.? I mean, the, the response from the companies, it varied from, you know, extremely hostile to no response. So Amazon just, yeah, it was extremely hostile. So anytime I was on uh, on, on the TV or on the radio, they would, um, you know, put out a statement. First of all, it was disputing kind of specific things. You know, j- like James only worked at Amazon like nine days or something. But it's like this is spread over the the month, so it's like in shifts, so it, it kind of doesn't make any difference. Doesn't really mean anything. Then things like you know, we we don't have any 
we don't employ people on zero hours contracts at Amazon. <laughs> which, yeah, you get an agency to employ mm. people on zero hours contracts. Then it became about, um, you know, oh, James only wrote this book to get publicity. <laughs> like it's like it's not you can't it's nothing you can prove or disprove. It's just um, you know James only wrote this sensationalized this stuff to sell books and like what can you say to that? And my job is to sell books, but that doesn't mean I'm making things up. As I said, when companies didn't behave like that, I was very honest about that. And you, as a journalist, like your job is bound up with your the integrity of what you write. So the idea that I'm going to go and make stuff up and like put my whole reputation on the line to to say that. People at Amazon were afraid to go to the toilet just to make that up is is nonsense. And it's all backed up by surveys that have been done of the workers in these warehouses. So a group called Organize did a survey of workers in the Rouge Lee Amazon warehouse I worked in, found 74% of people who worked there were afraid to go to the toilet because of productivity targets. So then when I find a bottle of urine in the warehouse, a Coke bottle filled with urine in the warehouse because someone's been afraid to go to the toilet, it, it, it makes sense. It's not like I'm just making something up. It's like you can see the situation where, why this is going on. Um, so Amazon, yeah, have been, it's been very hostile. They've they've not owned, as it were, their um, their kind of their mistakes, in my view. They they increased the minimum wage for their workers in British and American warehouses last year, but it was only after a, like a, a slew of negative publicity from. My book from the GMB trade union, Bernie Sanders did this this big campaign against Amazon. Then suddenly they realised that that maybe they're not paying people um, enough money. And Be- Jeff Bezos, you know, portrays it as this great act of philanthropy on his part when he's basically just been shamed into into doing it. Uber didn't haven't responded at all, um, presumably because they'd say that they're not they don't employ anyone. So, <laughs> um, Admiral haven't responded, presumably because I was I was. I was fairly generous to, towards them, so it's, it speaks, kind of speaks for itself. And the care company, you know, have, um, they didn't respond specifically to... Um, they just said something like, you know, we, 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 we do our best in a difficult environment. We don't necessarily... Uh, we don't necessarily agree with, agree with the representation of the sector that James has portrayed in the book. But it wasn't, it wasn't kind of um, that hostile or anything. That was like one time they mm. said this. But it was Amazon's been the most hostile. Was, has, have there been any politicians who took this as something to to work on, to run on, to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been um, I've always forgotten that because most of that was last year. I mean, I've been um, I did some videos with Bernie Sanders in the states, um, which was pretty cool. We did some. Um, we're losing we're losing viewers by the second. <laughs> as you're talking Bernie Sanders, ah, socialism. Ah. Yeah, so and look, neither of us is a big fan of socialism, but this, like I say, this is, this is not a partisan issue. This is yeah. an issue that's going to affect everybody. Yeah, so I mean, we did, I did some videos with Bernie Sanders, but then I've also I've got uh, some endorsements on my book from you know conservative. Um, I can't remember who now, but uh, <laughs> there are you know there's conservatives endorsed my book. I went, to, I've been to speak at like conservative think tanks. I also speak to uh, pension investment funds, businesses about this stuff. So it's not again, it's not just. It's not just being on the left that makes you want to see people treated with dignity and and, res- and respect um, and have some security in their lives. I think that's a the the book isn't a, a polemic. It isn't like a I don't isn't a sermon. It isn't a kind of isn't something you read in the newspaper of the Communist Party of Britain, Marxist Leninist. <laughs> um, it's 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 kind of more a moral argument that um, 
just because you don't go to university, just because you don't leave your, the town you live, you're born in and brought up in, just because you're not, say, necessarily academic, doesn't mean you're any less of a human being, doesn't mean you're, you're, you deserve to be treated in this way that, that people are treated often in the book. It's, um, it's a very straightforward, a very simple argument that I think anyone, wherever they stand politically, can, well, unless you're, you, 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 you believe in the works of Anne Rand, I guess, <laughs> I guess it's, um, you, can, you can buy into that, I think. She's a great and, writer, to be fair. <laughs> Guys, we wanted to tell you we're very excited to say we've got a new sponsor, which is HelloFresh. Uh, indeed, we have. HelloFresh is the UK's leading recipe box service, delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step -step recipes to your door. It is the easy, convenient way to cook delicious dinners from scratch every single time. Choose your favorites from 19 recipes every week. They have a whole range of options there for you, including recipes that are ready in under 20 minutes. There's family favorites, there's British cuisine, there's world cuisine. There's even a 550 calorie or under range. And that's a great thing because as you may have noticed in the time that we've been doing the show, Francis has actually lost quite a bit of weight. So congratulations to him on going from being massively fat to just being really fat. That's great. And if you wanna achieve the same results as Francis, keep eating lard. Uh, but if you want to be healthy and slim like me, check out these extra healthy recipes from HelloFresh. Yes. I think that's good. Yes. The fresh ingredients come direct from suppliers, i.e. they've been picked by Constantine's family. You, you can tell Francis studied geography at a British school because he can't tell the difference between Russia and Romania. Doesn't matter, mate. Same thing. Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> and the great thing is it's been pre-portioned for you, so there's no food waste just like in my home country of Venezuela. <laughs> the great thing with HelloFresh is that you're gonna be able to choose from 19 different recipes every week. So there is something for everybody. You're gonna be able to eat with your kids. There's gonna be no fuss. Dinner time is gonna be solved. Yeah, I really like the rapid box, which allows you to cook things in under, under 20 minutes. Uh, but the great thing about HelloFresh as well is it actually allows you to open up your cooking range. So most households on average have about six recipes that they cook regularly. Uh, HelloFresh has up to 19, so you can kind of expand a little bit in terms of your cooking. And of course, they also don't have a fixed subscription, so there's no term. You can cancel, you can uh, skip weeks, you can change the size of the box, uh, you can change delivery address, you can do all kinds of stuff to suit your life. To enjoy delicious moments, head over to hellofresh.co.uk, choose your box, choose your delivery slot, and add your favorite recipes. Discover the easy way to get delicious dinners from scratch, and if you do that, you'll get sick abs just like me. HelloFresh, we're offering trigonometry fans 60 pounds off four boxes. To take advantage of that, go to hellofresh.co.uk, Enter our special code, which is of course trigonometry, and enjoy delicious dinners without any of the drama. So we've, we've been talking, we've touched on the left now, so you're very much of the left. However, you have had your, uh, your issues, shall we say, with some members, with people on the left. Where do you see the left at the moment and the way it's progressing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I kind of fallen out with a, a lot of the left, kind of persona non grata. Basically, I face tattoos at this point. Um, <laughs> in terms of, in terms of, say, I wanted to be pursue a career on in politics or something. Yeah, that's that's not happening. Um, 
But um, what, what, why is that? Because hang on, you've, we've just been talking about something that is, you know, the left should be absolute, well, everybody, but in particular, the left should be absolutely outraged by and it fits their narrative of these global corporations who don't care about the individual exploiting them. And you come in and you expose them. Aren't you a hero? Um, I'm a bit of a troll online, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wouldn't know about that, would you? <laughs> I'm, I, I, was, I almost put on my, my strap line on Twitter the other day, like, more left-wing in person. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but I'm, no, I mean, there's there. I do have genuine beef. I do have a genuine beef with with a lot of the left over things like um, a lot of it revolves around kind of foreign policy stuff. So so when you know years ago I lived in Cuba for six months, like ten years, just over ten years ago. Um, you know, I saw all kinds of things going on. That, no, I saw friends arrested for you know speaking out against the government, fired from the university in Havana for for writing some mildly critical article about the government. People not allowed to leave the country without permission from the state, not allowed to move to different parts of the country without permission from the state. Uh, you see what's going on in, in Venezuela now, and these, like, a few years ago, you have all these kind of people, kind of, like, fanboys of, of Venezuela saying about you know, Jeremy Corbyn, Owen Jones, it's the, you know, this is a new model of socialism <laughs> we need to pursue. Meanwhile... Oh, God, kill me now. I remember... I used to work for this blog, Left Foot Forward, I used to edit it. Mm. And I remember once um, Boris Johnson was making this announcement, he wanted to bring water cannons to London. And we were, we were kind of writing this stuff, you know, this is a bad idea. I remember Owen Jones writing this stuff for the newspaper or tweeting, you know, this is a disgrace. Um, Boris Johnson wants to water cannon people in London. Meanwhile, and he'd just written an article about how great Venezuela was. And meanwhile, they were actually water cannoning people in Venezuela, protesters, student <laughs> yeah, protesters. Yeah, but it's very hot out there. <laughs> you need to yeah, be cooled off. But apparently, Francis mother is from Venezuela. Venezuela so. yeah. Apparently, it doesn't count because they're, they're, they're Venezuelans. And, yeah. and all this kind of, and Syria, you know, Seamus Milne, Andrew Murray, all these people just, Assadists, support, you know, yeah, a million people being killed in Syria. And they're, they're, they kind of, you know, umming and ahhing about whether. Assad's like used chemical weapons and, and all this stuff. I, that's, that stuff is really sickening, I think. But this is normal, right? I mean, in terms of the left should be a place just like the right and, and like the center where people have different positions about foreign policy. Yeah. They have right. different positions about... The Jews. Uh, the Jews, right. <laughs> uh, they have different views about different kinds of things, right? And used to be like any party, any political movement, it's a broad church, it's a coalition. On the right, you might have a Ken Clark conservative and you might have a Jacob Rees-Mogg conservative and then the same party, even though their views on Brexit, even though their views on many, many things would be completely different. What seems to me to be happening on the left, though, is that, as we kind of touched on, is there is this uh, sense that there is one way uh, and anyone who departs from that is automatically a heretic and they have to be exercise from from the movement is that accurate do you feel yeah i mean so academic david hirsch calls it the community of the good and if you you think if you you're a heretic on one of these issues if your thinking isn't aligned with the orthodoxy you're cast out of the community of the good unless you're jeremy corbyn and you secretly support brexit but um yeah you're you're allowed to stay for some reason um a lifelong anti-racist um but yeah, it's, it's very much like that. I think because being on the left, it's, first of all, it's a hangover from Stalinism, which Stalinism as a movement was, it was very much like a, like a teleological movement where, where you know, if you're 
if you're wrong about, like Che Guevara said once, that you know he wanted to nuke, he wanted to fire a nuclear weapon at Miami because you're saving the lives of future unborn children or something ridiculous. <laughs> it's it's um, that was that's the I can't remember. The, I think he said it, but it's anyway. That's that's the mentality that you have to be ideologically like perfect because you know it's a life and death struggle. Mm. It's um, you if good on a t-shirt, though, James. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if if you're um, you know, if if you're wrong about something, it has these life and death consequences. So you know, if you support austerity, you're responsible for the the deaths of like ten thousand people or whatever. I see people posting this stuff on Twitter all the time. You can't have a you can't have a debate like that on those grounds because then you have to know if if someone's really responsible for the deaths of ten thousand people or whatever, or the deaths the deaths deaths of future unborn children. You you obviously have to no platform them. You like if that's you know, you, you murderers, you can't have those people within civilized debate. And once you start thinking like that, the same with no platforming, you know, no platforming feminists now, some, some kind of radical feminists are being no platformed on the left because the, the people who are doing that see this as, you know, you're denying someone's right to exist. Um, it's, when you frame things in, in those terms as this kind, of, this, this kind of struggle, black and white struggle, this binary struggle of good versus evil, then... It, it becomes very easy to just then completely like deplatform, completely kind of um, like exclude people from from the community of the good, or in states where that's the ruling ideology, to put them in prison and kill them. I mean, that's what happened in the in the in the Soviet Union. Um, and again, you don't need to c- compare, you know, exaggerate and compare our current situation to that. But it's there's a way of thinking which, um, in in such kind of simple moral moralistic kind of teleological terms where history has this end point and, and you've got to do it doesn't you what's a mere human being who's excluded from the debate if we're heading towards this glorious socialist future um, that way of thinking has permeated kind of um, thinking on the left um, I think in sections of the left at any rate and, and why do you think that it's come back because the way you're talking it's uh, my mother's from Venezuela and that's it and that's a sign for everybody who listens to the podcast or watches it to have a drink um, <laughs> but uh but, but why? Why has it come back? Because you think, surely, it's 2019. We, have, we should have seen that this, these systems don't work. They I, just simply don't function. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's um, politics. I mean, there's, there's, we talked about reasons why uh, politics is kind of chaotic right now. I mean, you have this, these sections of the population heavily disenfranchised. Um, I think, though, on the other hand, I think that and there's, there's also, I mean, other authors, Jamie Bartlett, for example, who writes a lot about tech, tech stuff, he, he can talk about things like po- why societies become more polarized online and, and, and the online arena, whatever. But I think it's, um, politics has taken on a kind of um, religious hue, if you like, again. So it's, it's become much more of a like surrogate religion, or as Nietzsche called it, you know, a degenerated Christianity. So it's... You speak to people who like are really enthused by Jeremy Corbyn, and what they'll say is, they'll say, "Oh, you know, Corbyn's giving me a reason to get up in the morning." <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 they'll say this to you. They'll say this to you. You know, since Corbyn was elected, you hear this all the time. If you if you go to, um, I can't go to these things anymore. But if you go to, um, I can see why. Like a, Jesus Christ. A momentum thing or whatever, and you speak to, especially some of the older people, it's. Um, there's, it's like a religious mania. It's, it's like they, he's given them something to get up in the morning. And for many people, this is, you know, they get that from, from religion. Mm. But many people on the left get that from the socialist movement. 
So Oscar Wilde said, I think that, you know, he said that the problem with socialism is it takes up too many evenings. Well, for some people, this is why they like it. Yeah. It's because it gives their life a meaning because they don't have things to do in the evenings. They get to go to a meeting. They get to feel like they're, they're changing the world. Um, and imbues them with a certain morality as well, a sense of we are, the right, we are on the right side of history. We are doing something good. We care about other people. Yeah, and so like, like per personally, like I'm I'm kind of a, uh, an absurdist. I I think life has no meaning. I think it's um uh, you know a big big kind of follower of Albert Camus. I think life essentially has no meaning beyond which the meaning which you create for it, and that may not have any intrinsic value in itself. But some people can't accept that. You know, his, some people need that kind of that feeling that life has some purpose to it, and I think most people probably do. But I think because the world's become more chaotic seemingly in the last, say, decade since the, since the recession with the dis disruption in work and um, things like, you know, the, 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 the rise of disruptive behavior from, from Russia, the war in Syria, all of this stuff. When the world's chaotic, you see a, 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 a gravitation again towards these certainties of, of whether it's religion or whether it's um, a surrogate religion such as, say, communism. Well, if you, uh, it's interesting talking about socialism, why, what you were asking, why this ideology is mm. resurgent to some extent. Uh, I was uh, trolled by some American socialists on Twitter <coughs> a few weeks ago by the time this comes out because uh, Carlos Maza, the guy who got Stephen Crowder banned off YouTube, he tweeted out saying, be gay, be socialist, no platform bigots. And I retweeted it and I said... I grew up in a socialist country in the Soviet Union and you would have been put in prison there for being gay. So how about you just notice that you live in the freest society in the history of the world and be grateful for that. Uh, and a bunch of his followers came and it's all like teenagers. Really? Yeah, it's all teenagers. It's all very, very young people. And I, and I think partly that is because there are some genuine problems that you and I have covered on the show a lot, mm. which is can't, if you're a young person, you can't buy a house. Yep. You're not going to earn property. As you talk about your career, you're not going to have a career necessarily. You're going to have jobs, but you might, you're not going to have a career. Uh, you don't know what you're going to be doing 10 or 15 years from now in terms of work. You don't know whether you're going to have a job. You don't know whether you're going to have income. So it's an economically and financially very unstable time as well. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's, it's something to make a comeback because it's hard to say to those kids, well, capitalism is great because it's not great for them. No. You know, so I, I do think that these issues, which is why I'm so glad you've come on the show, these issues need to be talked about in, in a rounded way. Uh, you can't look, we've had Toby Young on the show a couple of times and I like Toby and I think he has some good ideas. But, you know, when he's just talking about capitalism as a thing that's going to save everything. Well, no, it's not. There are going to be people who lose out massively. Yeah. Uh, and these these things need to be addressed. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about is one of the things that's happened on the left, it seems to me, is that. I guess I feel like a lot more of them would care about those people that you've written about if their skin color was the right color and if they were trans or if they were, you know, LGBT or whatever. And I get the sense that we've become hyper-racialized and hyper-sensitive to all of these things. And that's driving a lot of the, the narrative on the left. Is that fair to say? Well, I think it's, it's basically the, the decline of the politics of class in a way. In the, I think it's... People think, even people who are ostensibly of the left, um, are basically liberals in their thinking about class. So they, they think that's kind of been, even though they may, again, they may kind of pose as, as leftists or whatever, 
they're not really bothered about exploitation in in the, the that sense, in the sense of class. So it's it's they they almost they they behave as if that's been kind of that riddle has been solved. The the, the riddle of kind of um, of of class conflicts has been solved, and that you know they they behave as if society would be fine if in the Amazon boardroom you had you know fifty percent men, fifty percent women, and you know twelve percent ethnic minorities. Never mind what went on further down the chain. As long as this is, you know, represent. As long as it's representative, then we've kind of solved solved that. And one trans, you know, one trans uh, board member, you've kind of solved this solved this problem. And you, this kind of attitude kind of permeates a lot of what passes for left wing politics now. Even if, um, even from people who who purport to be, you know, you know, very radical and very left wing, they actually want to keep this the basic structure of society in place. Just make it more representative, and I also think that its identity has become this. Uh, like identity, it, many of the people in my book, many many men particularly in my book, who felt very disenfranchised. There was like an identity crisis going on beyond uh, things like deprivation and material poverty. It wasn't just it, was, it wasn't just material poverty. There was there was kind of an identity crisis going on. So to be like a man, say. Several hundred years ago, your identity may have been defined by, say, fighting in a war, or you know, not this isn't necessarily. I'm not saying this is a positive thing, or you know, working in a in a steelworks or or a factory or something as a producer, someone who did things, somebody who went on adventures, somebody who made things, someone who even you know killed things. It's um, and again, also provided for their family. Yeah, and and a lot of it revolves around the the, the status of providing, supporting children, supporting supporting your wife, etc. And then that's kind of passed away to some extent. And we've kind of said that, you know, that doesn't matter because you can derive your identity from being a consumer. So no longer based on what you produce, no longer based on where you go, what you do, who you protect or whatever, who you support. But now it's just, you know, your identity is derived from what you buy. And this has proven, you know, insufficient for lots of people. People, there's still people very unsatisfied. It doesn't feel like, you know, you may be able to to dress or you may be able to dress in the attire of your favorite celebrity, but you've still got to go back to the your your bad job the next day. You've still got all these social problems around you, etc. And but at the same time, I think for for middle class affluent middle class people, the world of kind of identity politics that it's all just it, it kind of in some ways I still think I think it's not really beneficial to them either. But I think. It plays into this kind of narcissism, this narcissism of small differences. So, you know, I identify as, you know, you see people with their with their strap lines on their Twitter profiles, you know, what they identify as. And it's and it's just like like so what? So fucking what? Mm. It's like it's just this this narcissism of small differences where you split the differences smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's just a, a form of hyper individualism where you're separating up into smaller and smaller groups, which to me is is left being left wing is about universalism, is about coming together to fight for kind of common, to co- for common aims. Um, and that seems to me to be the opposite of that. Um, it's, it's about the narcissism of small differences. It's about um, these ideological wars against all these different smaller factions, whether you're, you know, you, whether you're a turf or whether you're, you're a pro-trans or, or, or whether you're, um, yeah, all of, the, all of this stuff. And it's, um, it's, to me, that's just an extension of, of near, what's called neoliberal 
politics. It's, it, there's not really much that's left about that at all, to my mind, anyway. Well, I'm offended. <laughs> anyway. It's good to finish with a bit of toxic masculinity there from Jane, just outing himself <laughs> as a typical straight white man, punching yes. down yeah. at poor people who self-identify as a fucking rabbit or whatever it is. <laughs> and uh, that sound you can hear, James, is the entire trigonometry audience standing up and giving you a standing ovation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not big fans of identity <laughs> politics on the show, but this is this is the conversation that needs to be had, man, because the, the differences between the real left and the real right are much smaller now than the differences between these woke people and, and yeah. everyone else, because they're fucking mental. They've gone off the deep end. Um, my favorite moments with them is when, uh, like I said, my mother is from Venezuela, and I've had uh, relatives who are journalists who I speak to, and they go, well, you know, we, I could disappear at any moment. And... Uh, they, uh, they they then come in and lecture me about Venezuela. Yeah. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And and on and on that no, happy note, and in no way question. makes me want to wrap a chair around their face. Anyway, and on that note, you uh, should do that sometime. <laughs> yeah. I, I would totally back you on that. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, well, it'd be the last ever episode of Trigonometry, right? Okay. So uh, the question that we always finish with uh, is, is is the same question. Do you want to do you want to give it, Constantine? Yeah. What is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we should be talking about? I would say, I mean, some of the things we've we've covered already. I would say the kind of identity crisis, particularly among, particularly among men. But but in saying that, like in saying that, I don't mean to exclude people from that conversation. It's not a case of, so you, you know, you you have people who talk about this in a way that does exclude others. So I don't. It's not a question of it's you know just white white working class men. I think there's um there's generally an identity crisis in terms of what it means to be be a be a man in the twenty first twenty first century. I'm going to be looking at this in another book, um, in a forthcoming book at some point. One um, hope when I get round to, to doing that. But it's, um, I think there's, you know, if you look at rates of suicide, depression amongst um, amongst men in, especially working class areas, um, those things tend to be tend to be very high. And that debate tends to be sidelined because, you know, because upper class wealthy white men have, have, have often have done very well in our society at the expense of other groups very often, particularly women, particularly uh, members of eth ethnic minorities. And but just just carte blanche talking about privileged white men, you're kind of it's another way to give those those people who in terms of the class system sit at the bottom of that system, giving them another kicking. And I think there's a profound identity crisis at the moment amongst Many young men, particularly in America, you see the rise of these movements, the incels, mm. the the kind of men's rights um, movements, which some of that is quite toxic. Some of that really does play up to the toxic masculinity mm. label that's applied to it. But, you know, I'm, I'm someone who's a socialist, social democrat socialist still. I, li I, I like to look at the causes of these things rather than just saying, you know, these are deplorables or bad people. I want to know why people are gravitating towards those movements, why there's this, this big rise in kind of so-called involuntary celibates and people who just feel that they're completely alienated from, say, the dating world, from, from, from members of the opposite sex, from society in general. And I don't think we're... I think there's a big reluctance to talk about that. No one wants to talk about why. So just to kind of finish, I guess... With with the incels, say it's it's easy to just talk about oh they're just losers they're just they're just you know losers who just can't find a girlfriend can't can't get laid you know you know whatever and maybe that's true but why is this why is this phenomenon happening now and um, shouldn't we try then to get these people socialized mm. so they can meet 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 members of the opposite or the same sex you know um, the program they're men man they're men <laughs> yeah it's, it, it seems to be a very dismissive like dismissive attitude towards people. Um, 
yeah, and, and I, I don't think this is healthy at all. And again, I think that's another of, the, of those things where just painting it in a, in a very moralistic thing of there's just these bad people, these deplorables, mm. you're just storing up even more problems for the future and even more of a backlash uh, when these people, um, when, you know, when, when, when these people are just left to kind of rot, essentially. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a crisis of meaning because if mm -hmm. you take that meaning away from people, they will find their own meaning one way yeah. or another. And if you don't give them access to meaning that's healthy and fulfilling and supportive of society, they will find a way to, 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 to sabotage society. They'll find some kind of meaning or some kind of group that fights against whatever is in existence. You know? Yeah, I mean, we see, I mean, we see this, um, like, the rise in, say, like, like people are attracted to, say, Islamism, like extremist, extremist kind of um, Islamist politics, um, leaving the UK to go and fight for the Islamic State. Again, it's, it's a search for meaning. It's a, it's a it's a it's a search for kind of meaning in a world where you feel you feel alienated from in a, in a society you feel alienated from in a society where you feel like you're going through this existential crisis you can't see any kind of um, meaning to it and it and it's manifested in something extremely negative there is no solution a complete solution where you create the perfect society but you and you see it again with um but we look at that I mean we we look at that and we assess why these people are attracted to this thing. But then when it comes to why people are attracted to say, go down this path of, of, of hatred and, and you know, this, this disillusionment and negativity in terms of, um, in terms of young, young West, like Western men, not, not, it's not white, it's not white men, it's, 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 it's a mixture of, of, of ethnic groups, but, but living in the West, why they're going down this, this, this dark path typically on the internet. We're very dismissive of it. At least mainstream media is very dismissive of it. And, um, Oh, you know, just screw them. It's um, they're privileged. Privileged. Um, it doesn't matter, but it does matter. And um, we should, um, yeah, we should, we should, we should not just let people rot on the margins because um, it it comes back to bite us in the end. I agree, man. Yeah. We, five years from now, we could see an army of incels just with <laughs> keyboards on the streets. Yeah, absolutely. But to the plus I'd be that we'll be crap at fighting. <laughs> well, that, that was my point. They're going to be smashing the matriarchy with their keyboards. Yeah. Um, All right. And um, so thank James. It's genuinely been a wonderful interview. Incredibly illuminating. If somebody wants to find you on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, where, where would they find you? Uh, so I'm on uh, Twitter at, um, at J underscore Bloodworth. And I'm on Instagram at james.bloodworth. Um, Instagram's the more, you'll find me more on Instagram nowadays because that's the f more fun side, more silliness, more fun. Um, I'm trying to get away from, Twitter can be quite toxic, I find. Um, whereas my Instagram friends, it's all about just screwing around and uh, having, having fun. So right. yeah. So follow James on that, buy his book, Hired. It's, it's a great book and very interesting. As you've seen, James, a lot of interesting things to contribute to this debate. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on all social media. Don't want to make this outro too long. Francis and I are both doing shows uh, as comedians in, in August, so you'll know about them if you regularly watch the show. And we will see you in a week from now. Absolutely. And please, uh, please, please, please tell the word subscribe. Uh, we are now on BitChute. If you prefer to go on to BitChute or if that's a platform you like to use. Also as well, uh, leave us a nice review on iTunes. Um, it really does help. Uh, and thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.